everybody to the LSE and to the Forum for European Philosophy. My name is Christina Musold. I am the Deputy Director of the Forum and a Fellow in the Philosophy Department here at the LSE. Um, and it's my great pleasure to introduce my colleague Simon Glendening to you, who will be giving today's talk on philosophy and European Union. And Simon is the Director of the Forum, as you probably know, and is also a reader in European philosophy at the European Institute here at the LSE. And I think that it's... Um, uh, so the, tonight's lecture is the third installment in the forum's annual lecture series on sovereignty and identity. And I think it's very fitting uh, in today's times that we are talking about philosophy of the European Union because arguably, you know, with the financial crisis looming and um, all, the, all the things that are going on in Europe at the moment, I think it's probably fair to say that Europe is perhaps at a crossroads uh, at this point in time where either as a European Union we come closer together or perhaps even fall apart. Um, and so I think it, it will be very interesting to learn and think a bit more today about the philosoph philosophical ideas and philosophical considerations that, as it were, provided the, the ground, laid the foundations of the groundwork for the European Union that we have today. Um, now Simon is going, I think, um, to focus specifically on Kant and Nietzsche, is that right? So I won't be saying anything about them, but um, I just wanted to briefly mention one thing that I came across today when I was reading a little bit in preparation for this event. Um, so Kant and Nietzsche obviously thought about European Union, uh, generally speaking, I think in the 18th century, the whole idea of European Union, or even uh, not just a European government, but a world government, uh, was very much alive and lots, lots of philosophers debated this. Um, and one thinker who's called Charles Castel Arp de Saint-Pierre, um, had, a, had a, a text which was called The Project for Making Peace Perpetual in Europe from 1713. And he, he argued by extending an argument made by Hobbes that reason should lead the princes of Europe to form a federation of states by social contract. Then Rousseau in turn commented on this proposal and I just wanted to briefly read that quote that Rousseau <coughs> gave uh, in commenting on this because I think it's, um, well, it's, a, it's an interesting and um, quote that sort of speaks, I think, to today's situation as well. So Rousseau said that, realize this commonwealth of Europe for a single day, and you may be sure it will last forever. So fully would experience convince men that their own gain is to be found in the good of all. So he was obviously, he thought that, you know, the European Union would be such a great thing that if you could only make it happen for just one day, it would last forever. But at the same time, he also thought that the Federation was very unlikely to be realized. Because, as he said, men are crazy, and to be sane in a world of madmen is itself a kind of madness. And I think we might, perhaps, in light of, uh, of the current situation, say that he is partly right, partly wrong on both of these accounts. So obviously, we have a European Union today, although whether that is the kind of union that, the, that those philosophers uh, were envisioning, <coughs> we could probably debate. But at the same time, I think it's far obvious, as I said at the beginning, that it will indeed last forever, given the current crisis. And so, with this, um, I'd like to hand over to Simon and look forward <coughs> to what he will tell us about continuation of Thank you. I think I start off with a question to myself, as somebody who is a philosopher or thinks of himself in some way as a philosopher, but works in a European institute and uh, we're surrounded by colleagues whose focus is on Europe every day 
And the question I have to ask myself is what, if anything, can philosophy contribute to an understanding of Europe today? Well, it's, uh, if you looked around mainstream philosophy, contemporary mainstream philosophy, you'd find that it doesn't have much to say at all. And uh, it looks like I was onto a bit of a loser trying to engage with this question. But I reformulated it for myself at one point, which was what, if anything, has philosophy ever contributed to uh, an understanding of Europe? And there I started to discover things of the sort that were just indicated now, where philosophers in the past and not so distant past have taken Europe as a theme. And, and as Christina says, today I'm going to focus primarily on Kant, but it's not just Kant when we're talking about Kant, and Nietzsche, and it's not just Nietzsche when I'm talking about Nietzsche. And then finally, because we're all missing the England match, I'm going to say something about <laughs> England and the English. So mainstream philosophy doesn't have much to say about Europe today, but not so long ago, Europe was not merely a kind of recurrent theme for philosophy, it was central to the discourse that was then called philosophy of the history of the world. Now that wonderfully grand idea of philosophy of the history of the world, that wasn't the idea of a history of human development in this or that place, or that part, this or that part of the globe, but it was the idea of a history that would chart a series of transitions that take human beings as such in stages out of one condition, an original animal or savage condition, into an altogether different one, ultimately an ideally civilized condition, a fully human condition. Humanity then itself has a history, a history that one might call the self-emancipation of rational subjectivity, or a history of the entity that was made in the image of God. Whatever the story, it's an idea of, as it were, the progressive de-alienation, or coming to itself, of what was called man in history. This was always a teleological history. That's the idea, it was always a movement towards some end or goal, a telos, a teleological history. It was also a messianic history. It was the history of some coming arrival of the end, an eruption into history of some kind of final redemption for fallen humanity. And this teleomessianism is also an essentially philosophical history. Because as I say, it's not concerned with histories or the history of particular cultures, but with human universality. A universal history. The history, as I say, of what is called man. And man, unlike all other worldly creatures, is essentially historical. History is the unfolding in time of inherent capacities which are initially merely human potentials, slowly emerging as human realities. For all human beings, there is this shared end of history in the realization of all our inherent capacities as a rational creature in what's often called rational freedom. Now, while it's 
perspective was emphatically universal, not particular. This traditional discourse of the philosophy of the history of the world was marked by a focus that was also stubbornly regional. The philosophy of the history of the world was always, in fact, a discourse of Europe's modernity. Taking in work by, among others, such giants as Kant and Hegel and Husserl, the philosophical construal of world history was not only European in origin, but also, as it were, Eurocentric, Europe-centred. The idea was that the transition for and transformation of man in history is a movement towards an end of man or an end of history in which one sample of humanity, specifically European humanity, is the best example and the head of the pack. Now Kant is often identified as the first serious proponent of this sort of philosophical history of the world. But it was actually Hegel's lectures from the 1820s on the development of what he called Geist, spirit, the development of spirit in history, that gave truly epic form to a sort of ensemble of brief and difficult texts by Kant. And Hegel certainly thought of himself as the philosopher of the history of the world. But Hegel's grand works, these long books, compared to Kant's brief essays, they remain essentially Kantian. Foremost in this regard was his insistence on a connection between the rational intelligibility of the history of the world, this possibility of it giving a narrative arc from a beginning to some final end, this, a connection he drew between this rational intelligibility of human history and what he called its religious truth. The philosophy of the history of the world, inaugurated by Kant, was not only Europe-centred, but it was also theological. It was a providential history. The unfolding of world history was conceived of as something presided over by God, leading to a final end of history that would be God's ultimate design of the world. Again, understood as the realisation of human freedom, of rational freedom. Now, while irreducibly religious, in fact, basically Judeo-Christian religious, in its sense of human history as meaningful only with respect to its end, Hegel's system, again like Kant's, conceived the movement of world history into European modernity as closely bound up with the process of secularisation in the development of Europe's nation-states. Later Hegelians, such as Marx, came to see this process as one which would lead finally to the transcendence of theological residues. But the idea of a kind of redemptive end of history remained in Marx, just as it does in the good news, his word, the good news of an end of history presented by Francis Fukuyama shortly after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Marxism may claim to overcome religion, but there's no doubt that it's just as firmly installed as Fukuyama's liberalism in the rationalism, the teleologism, the messianism of more traditional discourses of 
Europe's modernity. So within the terms of trade of the philosophy of the history of the world, Europe, as the advance guard or the avant-garde of this world global movement, takes on a more than merely regional significance. However, what gives Europe this kind of exalted position in philosophy is not some special, for example, racial facts about its inhabitants, but the fact that uniquely the spirit of European humanity has been configured by philosophy. Europe's emerging identity, its spiritual identity, is construed as inseparable in these accounts that I'm talking about from the project of a life predicated on reason that originated in Greek philosophy. On this view, Europe is not simply the region of the globe where philosophy happened first to be elaborated and developed. On the contrary, Europe first arises as a place in and through the elaboration and development of philosophy. Of course, philosophy is itself, historically speaking, a European phenomenon. More importantly, however, for these philosophers, Europe is itself a philosophical phenomenon. Its identity is bound to the idea of a philosophical project that, since its Greek origins, has concerned itself with the nature of the human as such, and hence humanity as a whole. So in philosophies of the history of the world, the particular history of Europe is grasped in terms of the universal destiny of man, in terms then of the movement towards a maximally rational, and that is meant to be understood as free life for man. And if European humanity is today caught up in a process of globalisation, this or their view, is not to be understood merely as the upshot of the hegemonic political and economic ambitions of imperialist Europeans, but in terms of the development of a worldwide culture, a worldwide rational culture, what Kant came to call a cosmopolitan existence, something open to all, that is unfolding on a global scale according to a religiously construed plan of nature within those early texts. Globalization on this view is the worldwideization of the European world, the planetary movement of all humanity towards a truly cosmopolitan existence. So, to summarize this bit, we've got the idea of a universal history where human history is understood as unfolding according to a teleological, that's goal oriented, plan of nature of God that leads to the perfection of rational capacities and thence, Kant says, as far as is possible on earth to happiness. So the basic idea here is that the history of the world can be related as a movement for man between an original savage condition and a final civilised cosmopolitan <coughs> But this discourse of the philosophy of the history of the world was, as I say always, a discourse of Europe's modernity, Europe's exemplary 
modernity. It's break out of, uh, free from a life of wedded to superstition and uh, magic and so on. And the construal of world history then has its centre on developments that took place, as Kant would stress, in our continent. And as we'll see, this is what has tied the philosophy of the history of the world so intimately to the development of European Union. A relationship that, as I hope to show tonight, is neither accidental nor at all unproblematic. I'll look at Kant first, and then briefly at the end at a rather different vision of European Union offered, as it were, beyond modernity by Nietzsche. So first, Kant. Now Kant was aware that the, his cosmopolitan narrative, this movement of, towards some kind of global cosmopolitan existence, sounded more novel-like, more fictional than historical. And he appealed at that point to what he regarded as the actual development of Europe to try to say, no, this isn't a fiction, it's a, it's a real historical development. And he gave it uh, a series of stages in, in the development of Europe's modernity, starting, he says, from Greek history, influencing next the body politic of Rome, which engulfed the Greek state, influencing next the barbarians, mainly Germans, who in turn destroyed Rome. And onto this, as it were, Greco-Romano-Germano backbone, which is, for Kant, conceived as having its abiding reality through these transformations in what he calls an educated public, which has existed uninterruptedly from its origin to our time. Kant then proposed that we can then, as it were, tag on the known histories of all other peoples of the world in order, he says, not to invent a novel-like fiction, but, as he puts it, to discover a regular process of improvement in the political constitutions of our continent, our continent, and then, ominously adding in parentheses, which will probably legislate eventually for all other continents. In a commentary on this Kantian text, on this anxiously novel-like philosophical history, which in French one might call nicely ambiguously histoire philosophique, where histoire is both history and story, this histoire philosophique of a plan of nature uh, the French thinker Jacques Derrida summed up the Kantian idea of this philosophical story as follows. In this teleological ruse of nature, Greco-Roman Europe, philosophy and Western history are the driving force, both capital and exemplary. As if nature, in its rational ruse, had assigned Europe this special mission, not only of founding history as such, and first of all science, but also the mission of founding a rational, philosophical, non-novel-like history, and probably that of legislating eventually for all other continents. The teleological axis of this discourse has become the tradition of European modernity. 
Now, this quote comes from a lecture that Derrida delivered at UNESCO in Paris in 1991. And in that lecture, Derrida explicitly linked the international institution in which he was then speaking to Kant's philosophy of the history of the world, stressing the way that Kant's texts can be seen as announcing, that is to say, predicting, this is quoting now Derrida, announcing, that is to say, predicting, prefiguring, prescribing a certain number of international institutions which only came into being in this century. That's the 20th century. Well, despite taking a far less teleological, less story-like view of actual history himself, Derrida still finds Kant's announcements astonishing. They have, he thinks, been undeniably future-producing conjuring institutions like UNESCO from a distance of nearly 200 years, making it so that there will have been a philosophical history, an histoire philosophique, inscribed in its charters and treaties concerning a human universality. Well, if Kant's writings can be described as inscribing a philosophical history into UNESCO's charter, how much more so can we attribute to Kant a sort of, and his work, a sort of history-producing event, still not over, with respect to the project of what is now called the European Union. When Kant anticipates the emergence in our continent of what he calls a great political body of the future without precedence in the past, it is impossible not to be impressed by the uncanny extent to which his descriptions map on to that still developing project. And I want to read just a passage in which he announces the emergence of this great political body of the future. It's from 1785. And he's talking about warring wars going on in, in Europe. Endless, endless wars between these states. The effects which an upheaval in any state produces upon all the others in our continent, where all are so closely linked by trade, are so perceptible that these other states are forced by their own insecurity to offer themselves as arbiters, albeit without legal authority, so that they indirectly prepare the way for a great political body of the future without precedence in the past. Although this political body exists for the present only in the roughest of outlines, it nonetheless seems as if a feeling is beginning to stir in all its members, each of which has an interest in maintaining the whole. And this encourages the hope that after many revolutions, the highest purpose of nature, a universal cosmopolitan existence, will at last be realized as the matrix within which all the original capacities of the human race may develop. Now, in the context of post-Cold War optimism, the construction and development of the EU at the end of the 20th century, the movement into European Union, really did seem to usher in an era of European integration and unity. Today, however, as the EU moves into the 21st century, its project, at least in its current form, is in serious trouble. Which way 
forward for the European Union. I want to suggest that Kant's announcement nearly 200 years ago of a great political body without precedent can in fact assist us once more in thinking about the trajectory of European Union. In uh, an introduction to a very recent book on the project of European Union, Calypso Nicolaides and Justine Lacroix explore what they call a philosophical triangle articulating three currently central conceptions of the idea of Europe. Now what's so striking about the three philosophical conceptions is that they are all prefigured and all discussed by Kant. So even if his view of the natural teleology of world history has lost its purchase today, his arguments on the three conceptions of Europe remain, I think, profoundly relevant. And the three conceptions are these in the philosophical triangle. One, the idea of Europe as a region of interconnected but autonomous democratic states. Secondly, a federal union of such states. And thirdly, a single united state. Kant gives reasons for supporting each one of them. And I think it's in the context of an exploration of this philosophical triangle that we could make a new start in thinking about the philosophy of Europe today. Not as the purveyor of what Kant himself recognised to be a worryingly novel-like, not, not to say Europe-centred, history of the world, but as the critical and realistic successor of such grand narrative storytelling. And the background to this inquiry today is, of course, an EU project in crisis. The central institutional expressions of the unity of European peoples within the EU, as the European Parliament, which was only established as recently as 1979, European citizenship, established in 1993, and a European single currency, established in 2002, these are all experiencing problems today. So a renewed philosophical engagement with Europe would be undertaken today in a context of profoundly turbulent times for the EU. So let's start with what Kant has to say on each corner of this philosophical triangle. Starting with the idea of a Europe conceived as a region of interconnected but autonomous democratic states. In an essay written 10 years after the one in which he'd announced the emergence of a great political body of the future on our continent, he stated 10 years later that its fundamental concern was with what he called the right of nations. So whatever this political body is about for Kant, it's about for him the right of nations. And he went on to claim that this right of nations shall be based on a federation of free states. But this means that the whole point of his discussion seems to be focused on what he calls peoples who have grouped themselves into nations. And what matters most for him is that each nation should be secured against invasion by external powers. 
so calling for a general agreement between the nations. And so at this point, we should think of this uh, federation of free states as nothing more than a general agreement between them not to invade each other. This agreement, whatever it amounts to, would have of its aim, he says, to preserve and secure the freedom of each state. So we have a basic argument for an international social contract. Just as the social contract on the national level is the idea of a transition from some kind of lawless freedom to some kind of civil freedom, from some savagery to some sort of civil community within a given state, a transition which would maximize the freedom of each citizen, so to an international agreement would aim to achieve the greatest possible freedom for each state in an international context. So Kant's argument, it would seem, is really all about autonomous democratic nation states. Or is it? I want to jump to the third one, which is, as it were, the complete extreme opposite of the first, where what we're talking about is not interconnected autonomous de democratic states, but a single united state. Here, we're not apparently looking at a form of integration of states at all, but a, a sort of form of their abolition, or at least the massive reduction of their role in international affairs, and indeed, as a consequence, national affairs. And some of Kant's remarks about this federation suggested he envisaged something like this as the final outcome of the kind of cosmopolitical process. For example, he says that the final step of political development would be the formation of a worldwide organization capable of securing peace through the operation of what he called a united power and the decisions of a united will. Now this kind of formulation of the power and the singularity of the power of this federation gave the impression to some of Kant's re readers, especially Hegel, as we'll see in a moment, that what Kant was proposing was in fact an international state, a single united state, or a world republic at its limit. But for Europe, an international state, arising first in Europe and thence in a final step some distance away, a world state. And this would be the logical parallel at the international level of the original civil contract at a national level. At a national level, individuals in a condition of nature agree to submit themselves to public coercive laws that they themselves produce, but then, as it were, live under them as constraints, thus achieving a civic peace. And Hegel thought that the very idea of a system of international relations that would be entered into a manner similar to the civil one would have to involve this kind of up one level power under which, which would lay down as it were coercive rules and laws for all the uh, 
nation states. And he thought it was a complete non-starter. Hegel thought this idea of a single United State was a complete non-starter. And I've got two rather long quotes here from Hegel, which we can go through, just to see why he says this. Because the relation of states to one another has sovereignty as its principle, they are so far in a condition of nature, one to the other. Right? So there, this is pre, uh, pre-social contract international relations. It's a relation of independent sovereign entities in a condition of nature, one to the other. <clears throat> Their rights have reality not in a general will, which is constituted as a superior power, but in their particular wills. Accordingly, the fundamental proposition of international law, which would call for a treaty establishing universal recognition of the rights of nations, remains a good intention, while in actual situations, any relation established by a treaty is continually being shifted or abrogated. So the individuals, they remain actually in this position of Uh, a condition of nature, one to the other. And as long as it's in their interests, they'll agree. But when it's not in their interests, well, then they won't. So you get these continuous shifts, and he carries on, peace and war. There is no judge over states, but most only a referee or mediator. And even the mediatorial function is only an accidental thing, being due to particular wills. That is, they say, they agree, yes, we'll have this mediatorial function. Kant's idea was that eternal peace would be secured by a union of states. This union should settle every dispute, make impossible the resort to arms for a decision, and be recognised by every state. This idea assumes that states are in accord, an agreement which, strengthened though it might be by moral, religious and other considerations, nevertheless always rested on the private sovereign will and was therefore liable to be disturbed by the element of contingency. That is, they no longer find it in their interest to be in accord. Therefore, when the particular wills of states can come to no agreement, the controversy can be settled only by war. And it's certainly true that Kant thought that the idea of an international state in Europe, and in the final step of a world state, is what he called the only rational step. It's rationally ideal, because it would indeed secure perpetual peace. So Kant says, as as it were, Hegel is reading him, (coughs) there is only one rational way in which states coexisting with other states can emerge from the lawless condition of pure warfare. Just like individual men, they must renounce their savage and lawless freedom, adapt themselves to public coercive laws, and thus form an international state, which would necessarily grow from Europe until it embraced all the peoples of the earth. So it looks like Kant, far from arguing for that first loose agreement between autonomous nation states is really after a much stronger idea of an international state, a single united state in Europe first. 
But as a matter of fact, immediately Kant states this as the only rational step. He says something which shows that he is absolutely at one with Hegel in thinking that, in fact, particular wills, that is, the wills of nations, are involved here, always involved here, and irreducibly so. So the proposal of an international state to that, he explicitly says, this, this only rational way, is not the will of the nations. And hence, <coughs> what he calls the positive idea of a world republic, or a united state in Europe, must be replaced, he says, by what he calls a negative substitute in the shape, he says, of an enduring and gradually expanding federation likely to prevent war, although there will always be the risk of it bursting forth anew. <coughs> Kant's objection to an international state doesn't end here. A further reason is given. A world state, he says, and indeed even a European United State, is, he says, too big to be administered in a non-coercive way. So couldn't be submitting oneself to coercive laws that oneself ascribes to. He says the laws progressively lose their impact as the government increases its range. And a soulless despotism, after crushing the germs of goodness, will finally lapse into anarchy. So an international state would, Kant thinks, he puts it, sap all men's energies, and a universal despotism would end in the graveyard of freedom. And this would be as true for the idea of a united, single united state in Europe as it would for a world union. A European Union or a world union for Kant would end only in the graveyard of freedom. For Kant, then, in fact, everything moves between two limit graveyards of freedom. The lawless state of savagery, of the uttermost barbarism, where freedom is the lawless freedom, where freedom only belongs to the strongest, in fact, a situation where, as it were, might makes right, and at the other limit, the condition of universal despotism in an international state, where, again, you have just the authority and force of this all-powerful central body laying down how things should be. Don't go there, says Kant. So that third one he rejects. So Kant doesn't argue for a positive idea of an international state, as in fact Hegel seems to have thought, but a negative, what he calls this negative substitute of what he just calls a Pacific Federation. Now that doesn't mean a federation in the middle of the sea, but peaceful federation, a Pacific Federation. And he says of this Pacific freedom, this federation does not aim to acquire any power like that of a state, but merely to preserve and secure the freedom of each state in itself, along with that of the other confederated states. So in the philosophical triangle of a region of interconnected states, a federal union of such states, and a single united state, Kant gives reasons to support all three, but ends up affirming the second, the idea of this federation, as the one that makes war least likely. 
Well, I think anybody thinking about the future of the EU today would do well to read Kant again. There are questions in this area, I think, in which he can be of assistance. On the other hand, there are also new difficulties today that Kant, as a, as a confidently metaphysical thinker of human progress, didn't foresee. Indeed, one of the central distinctions in Kant's description of the great political body of the future is likely to strike the contemporary reader as considerably more complex than Kant presents it. Kant says of this great political body of the future that it will not aim, as he says it here, to acquire any power like that of a state. But he doesn't suggest at all in saying that that it has no power. On the contrary, he's insisting here that it has the power to preserve and secure the freedom of each state in itself, along with that of the other confederated states. And that is a considerable power. However, since the formation of such a body would involve a definite loss of sovereignty for individual member states, the distinction between, for them, the distinction between a power like that of a state and a power to preserve and secure the freedom of each state can, as Hegel seems to insist, it can seem absolutely empty. State-like or not state-like but with enormous power. What really is the difference? To see how this kind of theoretical conceptual problem ramifies in contemporary debates, consider the ongoing discussion in Europe around questions of a fiscal union. In the wake of the sovereign debt crisis, various forms of fiscal union have been proposed as a means to secure long-term economic stability to the Eurozone. Now the Kantian question would be, do such proposals promise economic stability in the region at the price of sacrificing the integrity of nationally constituted democracies where the EU would have taken on state-like power? Or does fiscal union safeguard the integrity of nationally constituted democracies by promising such stability in the region, thus preserving and securing the freedom of each state? How, is, how are we to tell whether a proposal made today by the European Union is likely to safeguard a nationally constituted democracy by providing an environment of long-term regional economic stability likely to prevent war, or whether that same proposal sacrifices nationally constituted democracies to the long-term economic stability of the region. Are you enhanced in this condition, or are you diminished in this condition? Kant's criterion for the acceptability of the shape of the Union is whether it is the will of the nations. What he means by this is that there are certain forms of sovereignty loss that a nation can't will. When he says it's not the will of the nations, he means it's not the sort of thing a nation can will, that kind of sovereignty loss. Fine. But a situation in which nations can freely will that a certain form of integration is compatible with their right as a nation is not really the situation we're in, or ever likely to be in. Today, 
Many nations in Europe are in fact more or less nations in ruins. And maybe the sort of thing that a nation in ruins can will is quite different to what a nation might will. They may be forced to accept the will of powers that they are unable peacefully to resist. And even if the conditions for forming a Pacific Federation were more congenial, so that we're all in a period of nice economic stability and feeling pretty confident about ourselves as the right of nations and being able to express our will and so on, there still remains a fundamental structural problem in Kant's account. One cannot form an international federation designed to preserve and secure the freedom of its member states without the latter, that's the member states, in each case voluntarily giving up some sovereignty. However, as soon as a state takes that step, the federal body becomes, at least in some sense, state-like. And this has two predictable but conflicting effects. On the one hand, there is, as Kant notes, a tendency for each state to see its own majesty precisely in not having to submit to any external legal constraint, and so to resist whatever is perceived as a loss of sovereignty. And on the other hand, there's an equally powerful tendency, as Kant again recognises, for every political body with power to desire, he says, to extend its power, to increase its range of domination. And so there are deep instabilities built in to the project of constructing a great political body of the future on our continent that makes a close engagement with Kant's philosophical triangle both theoretically challenging and practically urgent. Now I'm going to make another jump forward another hundred years from 1785, from the 1780s to the 1880s and to Nietzsche. And like Kant, Nietzsche is a thinker of Europe as something still to come. A thinker of Europe, of the, what he calls the day after tomorrow. In his book, Beyond Good and Evil, written in 1885, 100 years after Kant saw the coming of a great political body of the future on our continent, Nietzsche writes <clears throat> as someone aware that the movement of democratisation that was beginning to dominate the politics of Europe in his time, in the 1880s, promises to overcome the European disintegration brought on by what he regards as the stupid, but he hopes temporary, nationalist tendencies marking his day. The democratisation of Europe itself, the creation of a European unity beyond petty nationalisms, beyond stupid nationalism. This is, Nietzsche suggests, a Europe that really wants to become one. A movement towards the integration of Europe beyond this nationalist disintegration. Now for Nietzsche, this movement towards the integration of Europe is not, as it was in Kant, a road to human self-emancipation. On the contrary, 
It will, Nietzsche thinks, produce what he calls the most repellent, levelling and mediocratizing of European people. Making Europeans into serviceable herd animals. Weak-willed, highly employable workers. However, he thinks the same conditions may also, although he thinks involuntarily. So what does democracy bring? It brings a kind of shallow egalitarianism where we're all just equal and nobody really rules and we're all just working like dogs. But this democratisation in Europe, he thinks involuntarily, may bring something that he thinks is great. They are also the conditions for producing, he says, a new supranational and nomadic type of man. Someone, he says, detached from any definite milieu, who will have as his distinction a maximum of the art of and power of adaptation. So you could think about some people, you take them out of their village and they can't survive. You take them out of their country and they feel like, oh, I don't know where I'm going. But this new supranational type would be, as it were, at home anywhere. This would be the involuntary, unintended consequence of this democratisation of Europe. And so ultimately, Nietzsche thinks that the European democracy, that European democracy could bring about something quite different to this weak-willed, highly employable worker, which most people will be, what he calls the breeding of tyrants. And so even though the general trend of European democracy will be towards the production of a type that he calls pre prepared for slavery in the subtlest sense, it is also a process in which what he calls strong individuals can emerge stronger, he says, and spiritually richer than has perhaps ever happened before. In virtue of what he calls their unprejudiced schooling, having liberated themselves from the defamation of a nationalist outlook and, it, and its formation, from this unprejudiced schooling, and as a consequence of what he calls this tremendous multiplicity of practice, art and mask made available to them, a few individual Europeans might finally become something worth shouting about. And he appeals to we good Europeans today to do what we can to bring about these Europeans of the day after tomorrow. The day after tomorrow belongs to me, in fact, Nietzsche says, sings. Awful. Such Europeans are not monocultural or national, but in themselves distinctively multicultural, supranational, and, he thinks, European. And in a text written five years later, called The Wanderer, sorry, five years earlier, called The Wanderer and His Shadow, Nietzsche offered his own philosophical prediction concerning what the outcome of this increasing democratisation of Europe would actually look like. A European League of Nations, within which each European nation will possess the status and rights of a canton, a Swiss model. Rather like Kant then, Nietzsche anticipates Europe acquiring something like a, a united will, or a 
single will, a supranational European single will in these new good Europeans, these supranational tyrants. Writing in the wake of Germany's then first unification, Nietzsche called this Swiss model the Germanization of all Europe. However, for Nietzsche, this single will does not emerge through the formation of a new resolve for peace, as it does in Kant. No, it's a resolve to defend itself, for Europe to defend itself against potential threats from beyond itself. Threats he saw, Nietzsche saw, coming from India or China, and most of all, he thought, Russia. So unlike Kant, who yearns for an end of war, an end of political antagonism, for Nietzsche, a newly integrated Europe should be the beginning of what he calls grand politics, instead of the petty politics of European nationalism, the grand politics of the future. Europe, a united power, a single will on the world stage, thus taking Europeans beyond the petty politics and divided will of their petty states, his words, a vision of the future of we good Europeans as a union of peoples you just don't want to mess with, and perhaps a Europe, as before, which can legislate for all humanity. And Europe, the idea of Europe anyway, seems to me to waver schizophrenically between peace and war, always on the verge, as Heidegger once observed, of cutting its own throat. If it is to avoid self-destruction once more in our time, it must strive to find a path between the destructive forces of nationalism and the equally destructive forces of centralization and unity. And if it is not to forge a union of nations in ruins, dominated by the last one standing, Europe must square the philosophical triangle and invent a form of integration that can, for now, secure the right and protect the right of nations. The great political body of the future remains a philosophical dream on the horizon of European politics. While Kant had a teleological vision of human history, he was not so naive as to think it was linear. Ever-increasing union, as they talk about it in Brussels, will not be realised in little steps or by kicking the can down the road, but, Kant would think, through upheavals and revolutions that as yet have no name, perhaps not even the name revolution. Well, this has been a very Greco-German story, as is the Eurozone that is presently so embattled, as is the European Championship, which is going on right now. And I want to end with a few words on the only other actually existing common currency union in the European Union. The Sterling Union. Our union, I will say, for, for a bit. I want to look at what Nietzsche has to say about what he calls the English. It's actually the British, as we'll see quite soon, but he, like a lot of Germans at that time, always just talks about the English. And uh, the list is rather long of what he has to say about the English, and the text will be rather small, but I'll read it out. So first of all, he says, and I'm speaking now in 
my we, we the British, we, he's saying of me, we are no philosophical race. Adding, it was against Hume that Kant rose up. We are, he says, a race of former Puritans, clever enough to make Sunday so boring <laughs> that people look forward to going back to work. We are clumsy and ponderous. Our literature is impossible. And even Shakespeare, he has his dig at Shakespeare. Our special vice is Kant, with a C. Uh, whining, whining and whinging. We cannot dance. Indeed, English women can hardly walk. We are marked by our profound averageness. What is lacking in England? is real power of spirituality and real depth of spiritual insight. We are, without doubt for Nietzsche, among the most contemptible. And in one of his texts, he lists the most contemptible shopkeepers, Christians, cows, women, Englishmen and other Democrats. <laughs> and yet, und dennoch, the step back, finally, despite the fact that it seems that no English man or woman has ever been what he calls a European event. Nietzsche seems to think that it would be useful for such spirits to dominate for a while. A semi-detached democratic heart of Europe, whether English or not, perhaps that is just the sort of heart that Europe needs today. Thank you. Ten minutes. Ten minutes. <laughs> Do you need to get me? <laughs> it's all right, no, it's Maybe we could have a live stream then someone I'm sure has an internet here. But we have some time for questions. So, um, yeah. Have That's you, the point of the ideas of Count Kudenhoff Kalberge and his pan-Europe movement? Oh. I wonder whether... Uh, oh, yeah, I have. Yes, whether the ideas at all might relate to what he's been saying about the European philosophy. Well, if it's the one I, I think it is. Is his the one which said that the great European, the great political body of the future would be servants of the nations? Is he that one? Well, I don't know. Because that's one of the ways in which people have tried to sort of articulate some plausible relationship between this power that's not state-like and the nation-states that it's meant to protect and secure. Uh, it was the idea that the... Um, that the European powers should think of itself exclusively in the role of servant. And so they're just simply, they're like a kind of civil service, just doing, doing the work of securing and not uh, articulating a positive program themselves. It's not unrelated, in fact, to something that Richard Bellamy mentioned last week in the second lecture in this series, where he said that the future of the European Union, it's its plausible future would require that national parliaments secure, take back to themselves, not the sort of sovereign rights of pre-union days, but European politics, so that they deal with European politics at the only level in which there's any uh, democratic legitimacy, as it were, within the structures of the EU, and the EU itself would just be informed in its policy from the bottom up rather than top down, 
Whether that has anything to do with Count what's his name, I don't know. Other questions? Europe is going through a very hard time. And uh, I hope that uh, philosophers of the past might have something to offer to lead us uh, in this difficult situation. Well, they took us into it, I think. Is huh? They took us into <laughs> it. <laughs> and, but I think that they have to offer. Uh, for instance, our Nietzsche, uh, he talks of supranational nomadic uh, type individual. And then he limits him to uh, just Europe. I know, it's not bizarre. But surely it's why, why doesn't he say, why does he say, we Europeans? Why doesn't he say, we whoever's? Yeah. We whoever's. We? Whoever. Who? Wherever. We humans. So there is a contradiction there. I think these people, sorry to say this, I, I, I'm a, I, I just only not here to this philosophy. And um, for me to say that they uh, <coughs> didn't have to offer. Uh, but they did. After 200 years of their talking, we, we fought the First and Second World War. And out of that emerged, I mean, I think the Business Union has emerged out of that pain that we went through in the First and Second World War. We thought we found that conflict was just too expensive, too costly. Yeah. And then. Uh, I mean, in fact, that would be almost as Kant describes it when he says that when you're in a situation of ongoing wars, one country will have to start promoting the idea of an intermediary, a mediatorial function, as Hegel talks about it, until ultimately this kind of structural function becomes institutionalized in a political body, likely to prevent war. And indeed, of course, it is the great achievement of the European Union that thus far it has done exactly that. But the first part that you mentioned about this, you know, why does Nietzsche talk about Europeans? That, that there, there's somehow a tension right inside the philosophical cosmopolitan project where on one level it's about the horizon of humanity but always thought through <coughs> always thought through of the particular history of, of Europe but because Europe in its particularity is the place in which that universality is thought and so th there's a sort of magnetic attraction between cosmopolitan universality and a kind of European supremacism of some sort whether not not of a kind of racial type because of course it's it's humanistic it's thinking that we're all the same but there is this idea of the Europeans legislating for other continents and I think if a if a cosmopolitan tradition is to be revived in our time that it would have to release itself from that European horizon. Now, how that could be done, it's not, you know, it's not like, oh, we can do that in one step, we'll do that tomorrow. No, but you know, perhaps it is also underway, and it's underway just in the way that you've, ex you've expressed it, by saying, why on earth did he say European? It's actually, a, 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 I had a similar question, actually, to, to that one. Um, do you think there's a difference between Kant and Nietzsche there? So Kant, of course, also thinks his humanistic projects from the European 
perspective or through Europe, but at least the sort of cosmopolitanism that you had in mind perhaps is more explicit in his work. I mean, he doesn't yeah. talk of a world government uh, as the ultimate yes. goal. Um, why doesn't Nietzsche do that? Well, I've asked Nietzsche scholars that question, and they go, oh, <laughs> <laughs> suddenly it goes, oh, <laughs> And I, there doesn't seem to be an answer, except he for the fact... He says petty nationalism, right? So yes. it's petty European Yeah, I know, exactly. Well. It's, it's exactly the right question. And um, it seems that uh, Europe was Nietzsche's world. And, and, the, and he, however much he may have admired other parts of the world, which he certainly did, and, and much more than many European thinkers did at his, in his time, uh, I mean, I, I don't know if I admire the things he admired. <laughs> uh, he, he rather liked the caste system in India, for example. Um, uh, he nevertheless thought that there was no, you can't, you can't, these things don't fall out of a tree out of nowhere, you know, and so he's thinking that there is, this is the movement of a European world, and that's the horizon of its event, a European event. Any more questions? Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, um, I have a question, actually, it's, I, I'm not sure it's really relevant and I can't um, um, ask it uh, in a clear way, but you, you, you begin your, your presentation with the question, um, can philosophy contribute to the understanding of the EU? Or of Europe, I did say, but yeah. Okay, Europe. let's say. <laughs> and uh, indeed, we saw that uh, it gives some insight, but I was wondering, uh, if there is not something a bit problematic is that all these views, it is history with a game, unfolding history. And uh, I have the feeling that in the EU, actually what defines the EU, what ties the European, um, uh, is not a plan, but the daily decision-making process. And, and if the European Union moves not according to a plan, but just according to the common interest, which moves from, I don't know, mm -hmm. one mm -hmm. uh, position to another, according just to day-to-day -day how Europeans come to a common agreement. That's a very interesting thought, that there, there's a real movement of European history, which is this dance or walk, or perhaps Britain's still not part of that, but uh, um, this dance of, 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 of European politics. But the rhetoric of that dance does remain teleological histoire uh, philosophique. Uh, it's of, of more Europe. It's of ever-increasing union. It's of a heading for the union towards some final distant goal of complete integration. I mean, if in the, bu in the Brussels bubble, yes, that's the language they speak. Yes, but it's a discourse. Well, I was just saying that's so interesting what you're saying, that there's this level of <coughs> rhetoric, the discourse, and perhaps this reality which walks another way. And perhaps part of the challenge for Europe is to uh, walk another way than, the, than that rhetoric, which is you know, a certain kind of fantasy. Well, it's also a certain kind of fantasy, I think. I mean, not a fantasy uh, in the sense that it's eternally, forever impossible. But, um, in fact, again, to cite Richard Bellamy from last week, it's a Europe which is going against the grain. That if Europe is to make any steps forward to 
stability in its own area and one uh, which secures peace. He, he says it has to go with the grain and the grain of democracy is still now and under stress at a national level and so the absurdity, the fantasy is to think that you can simply uh, produce European belonging, belong, feeling Europe by asking the history historians at school to be more pro-European, asking the press not to write such nasty things about Brussels and so on. Um, would you feel that Kant's idea of a federal union is it seeking to achieve this idea of the sum of all of the highest good and happiness and is that too romantic an ideal to be applied today? <laughs> yeah. um, I don't think it's a romantic ideal it's certainly an ideal that, that we would achieve there would be some end of man a final end, a, a last step uh, which as he, in the quote I put up, he would said it would produce as far as it's possible happiness on earth. Um, I don't think the problem with it is it's, it's a romantic ideal. I think the problem for us is that we can't take, we don't find it credible to think of the end of history like this anymore. And so I think the problem is not in its romanticism, but its teleologism in that, that kind of idea of a, a kind of final end of man. And if, if, we're, if we're in any kind of radically different condition to uh, Kant, it would be that we exist in a time where ideas of an end of history of that sort um, have, have themselves, they're exhausted. They, they, we're sort of at an end of the end of man, at the end of the end of history. We can't, we, that, those ideas which were perhaps last articulated in a convincing form in Marx, those were dashed, those hopes, those noble hopes, as was sometimes called, dashed in the history of the 20th century. And uh, the idea that we could, um, I mean, as, as it's sometimes put, the, that we could achieve some kind of unity of an idea, an ideal, and the some future unity of that idea and the behaviour of all human beings that, that we would have, as it were have reached this new Jerusalem as it were that, that, that I think for us is something that we we're more resistant to than they knew how to be Is that because we're too future focused? Well I, I, that's a rather interesting different question I, I um, I think our relationship to the future has changed. There, there's a, 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 a Canadian philosopher called Charles Taylor who rather wittily said that we are on the way, which is a teleological idea, we are on the way towards a less teleological way of understanding ourselves. And we are in that kind of very opaque condition where the self-understanding that belonged to the Enlightenment of, of, uh, of human beings as rational creatures heading towards some final end of civilized rational freedom is something that we can't believe. And yet it's not that we have some substitute, easily substitutable idea of a movement into the future. There are ideas of the movement into the future which we still have and which I think we still engage with 
which I think circulate around ideas of democracy as, an, as something capable of improvement. And that if democracy is our way of the point at which we try to negotiate a way of living, how to, how asking ourselves the question, how to live, um, the future is one we would send forward in which more people, other people, more intensely can engage with that kind of question of how to live, but without it now having a final answer. It's just that the, the uh, Augustine says it, the, the, the search is worth more than the discovery. That engagement with the question of one's own existence is more profoundly important than any, for us, any kind of uh, final Examples that um, Christina began with, which were Abbe Saint-Pierre and Rousseau, Kant sites, and he uh, and Leibniz sites, and there, there, there was absolutely in that period this uh, developing cosmopolitics in Europe, and that idea could not but inform the movement of European politics, I don't think. I, I think it's inconceivable. And I think it's also, Nietzsche was right to think that democratization in Europe uh, lends itself towards um, thinking beyond the nation in a, in a cosmopolitan way, because uh, democracy has that idea, the, the abstract idea of each one counts one. And it doesn't say each German one. Now, why, how it becomes the limited cosmopolitanism you describe is going back to the earlier question, which is very enigmatic, how it can be each European counts one. And, and I th I've always thought that ultimately, if you, if you do follow the logic of the cosmopolitan argument, you would uh, find that the European Union will one day collapse or change its name, and it would just become the Union. And uh, the... the the current Copenhagen criteria, which says any European country is entitled to apply for membership, and then they give a load of criteria that they have to satisfy, uh, things like democracy, um, European will just come to mean satisfying those criteria, and you drop the name Europe. You could, that could, I mean, how a Europe that's surrounded, that it, as it were, its origins emerging out of, it, out of the Mediterranean basin uh, could think that it might hold itself with some unsteady borders all over the place. I mean, as if the Mediterranean is a border. If I may just yeah. simply support that idea, if, if European identity or the base upon which European commonalities is a civic value or civic values, 
they are not national. No, right. exactly. So, yes. Um, yes, and I think that tradition, the, the cosmopolitical tradition, is, is very deeply inside the process of democratisation and indeed of Europeanisation. The, um, uh, the idea of federation, who else wrote at the time of Kant about it, and why is it, is there, is there an opposite view that it means actually giving up power rather than remaining with power? Because, I mean, I always find up being German that when we speak about Föderation in German, the, the idea which springs to mind is that certain states of the Federation retain certain powers like education, like yeah. economy, and so on. So our idea is, in, in, in today's language of Federation, is that it is the, the retaining of power. Yeah. Whilst I find here, whenever the word Federalist, is, and in other languages, whenever the word Federalist said, yeah. it means giving up. It's and interesting. I mean, in fact, the Euro-Federalists today yeah. uh, I mean, are, are the ones who are keenest on the idea of a, a central European state, which of course would have delegated powers in some, you know, the, the national governments would be rather like local, regional governments. But the fundamental questions about uh, um, foreign, foreign policy, um, fiscal policy, tax levels, all these sorts of things, these would all be taken at a supranational level. You would give up powers to that. And that's now called the federal idea. And it's true that Kant, when he talks about a federation, um, he didn't, I think, didn't really have that kind of idea in mind. He certainly had an idea of a body with power, but I don't. He, when he says not state-like, I think he means that very seriously. It's not like that's the central state, and then you have regional parliaments as we today have uh, very <coughs> devolved parliaments in Britain and of course regional local government too but the idea of the state has to be the one who has those fundamental powers of declaring war history is not linear. So it would, if, if, if there is to be a future of a European Union that's more Kantian, then it will indeed probably involve upheavals on our continent of a type that we've seen before and would hope we weren't going to see again, but maybe will. And uh, we don't, you know, I don't know. But uh, what I'm saying is that if it was to become more like a Kantian idea, it would seem to me that it's not going to happen. Well, I mean, it, it, perhaps it could happen peacefully. Actually, I just have no idea. But it wouldn't be, as it were, just uh, following the steps that it's going now. Um, going back to Hegel for a moment, yeah. Hegel says that socially, 
family opposes society, by both are superseded by the state, following uh, the idea of following an Aristotelian reading of the emergency of the state. Yeah. And historically, states encou encounter each other and so as opposite, and they must seek hegemony. But uh, interesting that Hegel, uh, interestingly, he doesn't follow through this nationalistic reasoning by accepting the synthesizing of nation into one world government. That's so right. you think it's possible this synthesized in a world government? Also, you mentioned happiness. The utilitarians like Bentham and Hill, they said they avoiding pain. Do you think that uh, a world government might be the happiness of the largest number in the sense of people who do not finally Marx accepts Hegel's general uh, argument by rejecting the idealistic nature of the world yeah. in favor of materialistic one. In a way communism was trying to achieve a world government. Yes. So it would be too long. Right? No, but that last point's absolutely right. I think I almost said that myself, so I definitely agree with that. The, the, the um, Hegel, very interesting. I remember, uh, some people may even be here. We, we were looking at Hegel on the end of history and finding it almost impossible to understand what he was saying. But what was pretty clear is that you're absolutely right. He didn't have the this Kantian idea of some final world state of any sort. The, the best we could find from Hegel scholars was the, the idea that we all become Prussian. We all become Prussia. So every state, as it were, becomes Prussia. And, and there'll be, of course, endless wars, but also certain interesting periods of peace. <laughs> so um, I think the end of history for Hegel is the situation when we all become Prussian. Um, the utilitarian end, um, I don't think that they had uh, any sort of uh, ambitious projects for themselves, rather, rather as uh, Nietzsche uh, discusses the, the English, the, 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 um, the ambition of philosophy for the English has always, has never had that kind of spiritual destiny characteristic. And uh, when, when he says they are no philosophical race, he immediately talks about the utilitarians. So he's not saying that they don't do philosophy, uh, they do, but they're, they're, you know, it's like it's no, it's just not. For, it's no good, and it's not worth anything. And yet, he thinks, and it's a really interesting move he makes. He says, "We've, as it were, got to suffer. We, we Europeans, really. Oh my God, we've got to suffer. Government led by thinkers of this type. You know, whether we call them English or not, or cows or whatever. Um, these are what he calls people who." There are, are spiritual people and they're creators for Nietzsche. Uh, and their knowing is creating. And the philosophers create what it means to be a human being. So they've always got this global destiny in view. The utilitarians don't really have that kind of view, thing in view. And their knowing is, he says, knowing the rules. And it would be quite good for a while to have people who know the rules to be in charge. Because he says that the more spiritual people, the Germans, are liable to fly off into sort of fantasy land and they need to sort of be pulled down, pulled down like this. So that the you have this sort of suffering of government by 
these utilitarians to prepare a kind of readiness for a proper spiritual future. Also, Nietzsche mentioned the Ubermensch, yeah. the Superman. Yeah. How do you, can you... This is man overcoming man. Man overcoming this. The Superman yeah. with uh, a union of people of different... Yeah. Well, these 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 new Europeans and these Europeans of tomorrow are as are the are the precursors to that. Yeah, there's a question. Um, Last question. I'm coming to specific freedom. Yeah. And so to preserve and secure the freedom of each state in itself. Yes. Now, when we speak about freedom today with regards to the European Union, don't we um, more or less always refer to the um, to the economic integration? And freedom of movement of goods and yeah. labor and yeah. to me I'm struggling to understand I mean if we want to create a market which gives us freedom in a way and at the same time we say that the Europe, that this integration causes problems mm. is that is that in the kind of view I mean has he thought that in this well, you, you were here when Richard Bellamy was asked a similar question. You may even have asked it. I mean, his point at that point was that these supranational nomads are almost countable on one hand. There's very few people who actually move around. So, first of all, you've got to see that we're in a, a situation where most people don't do this. And, in fact, Nietzsche doesn't think that most people ever do that. Uh, the second thing is that um, this free movement idea is already inscribed in Kant. Kant had already this idea that the, uh, that the basic condition of a cosmopolitan existence would be um, universal hospitality. And so something like that, I mean, he, he limits it to um, visiting, not to stay to work. So that, that is a rather different idea. But, it, you know, it's not 100 miles different. And, and it would be, as it were, in the spirit of Kant to challenge him on the question of, can't, can't people move to work as well? So I'm not. But it's already inside the Kantian idea is freedom in terms of that uh, possibility of, of, of going anywhere. And with that, I think we're out of time. So please join me in thanking Simon for this.